name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what the telly doesn't tell you. This week, reaction to the landmark conviction of George Floyd's killer, Derek Chauvin. If this becomes a kind of mark of progress, that's the worst possible thing that could happen. Chauvin was convicted. He's one police officer. Plus, famine returns to Ethiopia, not by accident, but by design. Starvation is being used as a weapon. Farmers are being told they're going to be shot if they do any farming. All of the food that they had at the moment is being burnt rather than given to the people. And it's actually happened to my uncles because they're farmers. So they actually do want to starve people. And as English football clubs withdraw from the breakaway European Super League, what about the health of our own Premier League? I'm a sentimental romantic who watched his club ascend from the lower leagues to the top division and to win a major trophy in the 1980s. That dream is no longer alive. I wish it were. I wish it were. I wish the Premier League had never happened. All that to come. First, a reminder that we don't owe allegiance to any media mogul, corporate interest or political party. We can tell it like it is, because this podcast, Byline TV and our news-breaking website are supported by subscribers to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times, which costs just £36 a year. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed juror four person, juror number 19. The conviction of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin found guilty of three charges relating to the death of George Floyd in May 2020. Floyd's death and his dying phrase, I can't breathe, repeated more than 20 times as Chauvin knelt on his neck, sparked Black Lives Matter protests around the world and provoked a wider discussion about the legacy of slavery. Given the traditional reluctance of juries to convict police officers who kill in the line of duty, in the rare event these cases are even brought to trial, there was intense interest in the case on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond. After the trial, I talked to Kahindi Andrews, Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University and author of The Age of Empire. What was his reaction to the guilty verdicts? I mean, I was a bit numb, to be honest. I mean, this is what should have happened. I'm not sure why we would celebrate, because this is this was obviously the verdict. I think it tells us a lot that it was ever in doubt, just how difficult it is to, to prosecute police officers. And also, this isn't the first verdict. I mean, the killing of Walter Scott just a couple of years ago, there's a video of a police officer shooting Walter Scott in the back, got 20 years in prison. So when there is, like, clear video evidence, then it is possible to prosecute police officers. I don't know if that means anything more than that or any wider things about racism in society. I think I heard somebody from George Floyd's home state, though, say that prior to this, no white police officer had ever been found guilty of killing 
a black person. The only police officer who had a conviction was, in fact, a black police officer. So in that sense, it was a landmark. Oh, yeah, certainly in Minneapolis. So, yeah, Minneapolis, there was a, a Somali uh, police officer who was convicted just, just a, couple of years, a couple of years ago. And it is rare. Look, this doesn't happen very often, certainly. But like I said, this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, that just shows you how low the bar is, right? That when you had, we all watched what happened, there's no doubt, really, the medical evidence was very clear in the trial. This should have been cut and dried. Uh, but because police officers don't tend to get prosecuted. And in here, in the UK, it's even worse. Like, police officers never get prosecuted for these things. The problem is, if we start to celebrate this as some kind of progress, then we're just falling into a very dangerous trap, I think, because this is just what is supposed to have happened, right? There were celebrations, though, weren't there, outside the court? And perhaps the fact that the bar is so low is worthy of note in itself. Yeah, and I think my, this is my big worry. The worst, so the worst arc of this story is George Floyd, massive protests, and then this is the end, right? There was a prosecution. That's great. We, we, we've had justice for George Floyd. There's no justice for George Floyd. He's dead. You can't get justice. And if you actually look at what's happened since that case, you've had the police officers cleared in Breonna Taylor's case. You had video evidence of Jacob Blake being shot by police and that they were cleared. We just had Makia Bryant, a 16-year-old child, shot just this week. I mean, if you actually look at the, in the bigger picture, it's very difficult to argue that anything's changed in America, really. And this one case is a standout case because you have the, the evidence is so clear and because of the protest. So, yeah, I think this would just remind us of just what the stakes are and that we still need to keep fighting for racial justice. What do you think it means for black people in Britain? I mean, at some level, it means absolutely nothing. I mean, really, like, as I said, like there's been no pr- police prosecutions for deaths in custody in this country. And I'm in I'm Birmingham and we've been campaigning for a year, almost a decade for Kingsley Burrell who was a young man who actually called the police and ended up dying in police custody. MC Mohammed died recently, Sarah Reed. I mean, there's the, you can just list off the, the names here. And one thing this does actually in stark relief is the, in the UK, there really is very little accountability between the police, the courts and the public. And really, the, there's two reasons why this prosecution happens. One is you've got video evidence, which is really important. And in most of the UK cases, there's no video evidence. It's not like shootings. It tends to be behind closed doors. It's in a police cell. There's nobody around. There's only police witnesses. But the other thing is because you have the prosecutors are accountable to the public, the police commissioners accountable to the public, when you have this kind of protest, it means they have to go forward with prosecutions. Whereas in the UK, this is not the case at all, which is a really strong reason why these prosecutions never get brought. So if you're thinking about what things we can learn, actually making the police and the courts far more accountable to the public would definitely be a good thing, I think. You say that nothing has changed, but you'll know that there are moments in history that seem to galvanise people. And we've seen the President of the United States, Joe Biden, hailing this landmark of the conviction of Chauvin. So maybe it is a moment on both sides of the Atlantic when politicians will recognise the historical injustice around policing and black people. But I think that's the danger, though. I mean, if we think that this is a, this solves or makes anything better in terms of police community relations in the UK or the US, particularly the UK, because again, this has zero impact in the UK whatsoever, right? But so if, and you already see Boris Johnson using this as, oh, look, isn't this great? If this becomes a kind of mark of progress, that's the worst possible thing that could happen. Look, Chauvin was convicted. He's one police officer. What about joint enterprise? I'm aware that the other police officers, their cases are coming. They haven't even been dealt with yet. We don't even know what's going to happen to them. And then more broadly, this isn't about a few bad apples in the police force. This is about what the police force is. 
And this conviction doesn't change that in any way, shape or form. So the biggest danger is that this is used as a mark of progress. And really, this is just what should happen when you have evidence of somebody killing somebody in public. Like this, 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 this should we should we should have never this should never have been in doubt. And actually, that that that's the problem, really, with this whole narrative. And do you think there are direct parallels between policing in the United States and policing in the UK? We are two very different countries in many ways, and two very different cultures. Well, really, America is just Europe generally on steroids. Like you can just see things more more clearly if you actually look at the statistics. Black people are, are r- roughly three times overrepresented in people who die in suspicious circumstances at the hands of the police. The big difference in the states and, and Britain is that America is a far more violent country because it's a far more racist country. Like people carry guns in America. That is so tied to the history of slavery and lots of black people being there and fear of etc. So because it's a far more violent country and because the police carry guns. There's far more killings by police, but if police carry guns in the same race as American police carry guns, there would be the same thing would happen, right? Undoubtedly, because actually this, the logic is the same, the system is the same, the application is different. And really the biggest reason the application is different is because there's 40 million black people in America and there's 3 million black people here. So the society can be less violent, it can be less restrictive, it can be, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to have the same debates. But actually if you look at the logic of it, and it plays out in stop and search, it plays out in arrest rates, it plays out in prisons, it plays out in every way. It's really exactly the same. The Black Lives Matter movement in the United States has called for defunding of the police. I'm not sure that we have the same kind of political and tax setup in this country as they do in the States. I'm not sure that's a particularly meaningful demand in a UK context, but how do we move the relationship forward between police and black people? Well, I think certainly it's very different in terms of if you look at the police budgets in America. I mean, an insanely amount of money and the way that it is localised and it is a very different in that sense. But I think we are having a conversation now, generally, particularly with austerity, what should the money go on? And actually, ironically, it's the complete opposite. Actually, both Labour and the Conservatives want to put more police. Like, let's put more police on the streets. And that's really dangerous. All of these problems generally, not just for black people, but if you look at problems of crime are created by social conditions, inequality, etc. The reasons that black people are more like over-policed and, and living in poorer areas, etc. The defunding the police argument is saying, well, look, let's stop putting money into policing. Actually, let's put that money into the community, into services, into jobs. And that's made this very same argument here when we're thinking about how do we deal with the welfare state, particularly after COVID, when we, there's people, austerity could be even worse after all this money we'd have spent. So actually, that those conversations about where do we put the money and what do we prioritise, and particularly with this government that's making a very strong law and order picture, if you listen to them, a very strong, there's a, a way to be British and you should not deviate from that, which is giving more powers to the police with this bill that's going through that will make it the penalty for uh, defacing a statue will be more than the penalty for rape. I mean, actually, these conversations are really important, particularly now with with this government. And the emphasis should be on saying, well, how do we fix the problems in the communities rather than just pouring more policing and making those problems worse? But your argument then would be not more bobbies on the beat then, but more youth clubs, more sure start centres. If you've got taxpayers' cash, address the root issues of the problem. Exactly, yeah. Putting money into police is the worst thing. And 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 I have to say, it's one of the most deeply depressing things about the Labour Party is this, you know, this, this, this law and order, yes, more police, because that's not the solution. The solution is, it is, yeah, it is youth services, it is jobs, it is, it is resources, and that money is just much better spent there, rather than just filling up the prisons and getting, and getting more people locked up. 
And in that question of disproportionality, these structural problems, we know that black people are much much more likely to be stopped and searched. We know that black people are more likely to end up in mental health institutions per head of population than white people. How do we start addressing those issues rather than just saying that's how it is? So I think one is that it has to be a massive overhaul. I mean, this is what you get again at the defunding of the police thing is why do the police have so much resources, power, etc.? And it is about defunding the police is more about saying, well, let's think about what the role of the police is. Why have we just accepted stop and search as a, as a tactic? I mean, for black people, it's, listen, it's around 10% of people who are stopped actually ever get arrested. So 90% of people, the vast majority of stop and searches are pointless. Well, they're not pointless because what they're doing is terrorizing the communities. And actually, that's one of the reasons why stop and search is used. So we should be saying, well, actually, let's have a complete rethink about police tactics. Maybe this just shouldn't be allowed. Maybe just stopping people for no cause is is just generally a bad thing for the police to be doing. So I do think you have to have some serious questions about about things like stop and search. And then there are these serious questions about not just the police, but also the courts. So it's about charging. Why are black people far more likely to be charged, more likely to be in custodial sentences? One of the most startling statistics in the UK in terms of racism is half of all, more than half, so like 51% of all young people in who are in young offenders institutions are from an ethnic minority. And that's insane. Like, how have we allowed that to be the case? And we do have to really think that, one, it's about the police, but two, it's also about thinking about how we deal with young people more generally. And three, how do we deal with black people in particular? Because actually, if a lot of these stereotypes around crime, around how we treat people, around why people are allowed to be brutalised, there is an acceptance of things that happen uh, to black bodies that just wouldn't be accepted for other people. And so that, that's, those are kind of the conversations we need to start to be having. Professor Kahindi Andrews. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, which is funded entirely by subscribers to our monthly paper, The Byline Times, which costs just £36 a year. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. Now, the last time Ethiopia was in the news in the UK, Bob Geldof and Live Aid stepped in to help relieve the country's famine. That was in 1985. Now, mass starvation is back in the country's northern region of Tigray. Only this time it's come about not by accident, but design. A conflict between the national government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front has seen more than 2 million people displaced, and according to official estimates, Four and a half million people need emergency food assistance. The Ethiopian army and forces from neighbouring Eritrea have been accused of using starvation as a weapon against the Tigrayan population, as well as committing a series of atrocities, including gang rape and massacres of civilians. Leandra from Birmingham got in touch to share the story of her relatives among the farming community in Tigray, who were affected as soon as the fighting started last November. The first thing they noticed was the power was turned off and that's happened again a couple of days ago. So that's what they do is they want to have communication, power, everything to be turned off so people can't contact anyone else to let them know what's going on. It's trying to be everything in secret. The power is affecting them in their day-to-day life, but it also is a way of stopping them communicating with anyone outside of Tigray. So it's a double-fold thing. At one point, water was turned off. The banks were closed, so you can't send them money. Recent thing they're doing is stopping the farmers farming because they're trying to stop people having access to food. So over the months, there's been different things they've used to make people's lives more difficult, as well as the 
the bombing and the shooting. They've used power and water and food supplies being cut off as well. There was a time, I know, that you were unable to communicate with your Yeah, the phone members. lines were down. Yeah, until two months ago, which was about February, we couldn't even fight, speak to them to see if they were alive or dead. So it's been a blessing. Even though the phone lines are down now, they have been on most of the time for the last two months. Only like a day or two, they turned them off. But majority of the time, the phones have been working, which is really great to be able to speak to people to know what's happening. So that started two months ago. So that was good. But it's not currently running at the moment. You can't phone them for the last three days. Which relatives of yours were you uncertain about then when the phone lines were down? And what was that uncertainty like for you? I was worried about one of my aunties because she's she needs medicine. She's got a kidney failure, so she needs her medicine. So I was particularly worried about her and my young cousins because they're only like three and five. I was worried about them. Luckily, my auntie's still alive, you know, without her medicine. And they have got a way of getting food, but it's, it's very difficult. It's not like the, the mainstream way of getting food. So, but I was worried about the young ones and my auntie, you know, who needs who needs help most of the time. So I was worried they weren't getting any help. We wouldn't, we, we didn't even know if they were alive and stuff. So it's just the vulnerable ages, the older and the younger ones I was really worried about. Yeah, I know when I first spoke to you, you weren't sure if your cousins were alive. No, I didn't think anyone made it because I, I kept reading reports of thousands being killed and you, you can't imagine... Yeah, your family could be so fortunate when thousands are being killed. You just you can't imagine any of them making it. But it's a relief that so far that they're all alive, which is I don't know how, but they are, which is great. What was that period of uncertainty like? <laughs> it was it was awful. I had to take time off work, and I just thought they, I thought none of them made it. It was it was really it was it was hard. It's hard now, but at least I know they're alive. So, yeah, it was really, really terrible at the time. There have been some appalling reports coming out of Tigray about atrocities mm -hmm. committed by Ethiopian and Eritrean troops. Mm -hmm. What have your family told you that they have seen? My three- and five-year-old cousins have actually seen soldiers kill people in front of them. And I have seen on Twitter that other children being killed, but luckily the soldiers who saw them didn't kill them. But they've actually seen other people being killed in front of them. And I think that's going to stick with them for a long time. Because I've got an auntie who lives in Luton now, in England. Once she was young, she saw soldiers killing and it's stuck with her now as a grown-up. So... You don't know what the children's going to remember when they're older, but they've seen it now as young children, people being killed, dead bodies on the floor. What do you hope the British government or the international community can do? Like in the House of Lords, they've spoken about what's happened in Tigray, and in America they've spoken to Abby, but I want them to stop speaking to the man who's causing the genocide. I want them to actually go to any part of Tigray just to see what's actually happening because they keep speaking to the to the man who's committing the genocide. I want them to actually 
go to see what's happening rather than taking his word for it and and make a judgment to to stop it happening to ask the, the armies to leave, to enforce the armies to leave, to make sure that they listen to instructions because you can't just tell them to leave and then when they're still there, do nothing about it. I want them to actually encourage the, the soldiers to leave Tigray after witnessing it for themselves because they don't seem to be going any further than the capital. That's not Tigray. So they haven't actually seen what's happening for themselves. They should listen to the NGOs. They shouldn't be listening to the people committing the genocide. So that's what I like them to do. Abiy Ahmed is the president of Ethiopia for people he who is, don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. You call it a genocide. That's a very strong term to use, the deliberate um, mass killing of people from a particular community. That's correct, yeah. I am using the right word. If you're from that part of the world, you are being targeted, so it is a genocide. If they can't stop the war, if they could just help with the food supply, because that's been stopped and farmers have been stopped from farming, if they could guarantee like medical and food supplies could be given back to Tigray, if they could just have some sort of guarantee that... Oh, excuse me. It's okay. Um... It's all right. Okay, um, if the governments don't believe that genocide is happening, if they could work with the Prime Minister to um, make sure that people actually get food, that would be beneficial. That message that starvation is being used as a weapon. I would like that to come out, please. You say starvation is being used as a weapon? It is, yeah. And in the UK, they gave loads and loads of money to Band-Aid when loads of Ethiopians were starving. And right now, starvation is being used as a weapon. Farmers are being told they're going to be shot if they do any farming. All of the food that they had at the moment is being burnt rather than given to the people. And it's actually happened to my uncles because they're farmers. So they actually do want to starve people. So... What I would like people to be aware is, if, even if they don't believe there's a genocide and they can't get the soldiers out, could you at least give them access to food? That message I'd like to come out, please. I'm sorry if I don't sound very clear. I'm a bit upset. Harrowing testimony from Leandra, and her claims are supported by accounts from reliable international news sources and NGOs. For an independent view, I turn to Alex Duval from the World Peace Foundation based in Massachusetts. Is Ethiopia using starvation as a weapon against its own people? I get a lot of calls from Tigrayans over the last few months. And what I have started greeting them by, these are people maybe whom I don't know, I start by saying my condolences. Because everybody I speak to, if they haven't lost a member of their immediate family, have lost a relative of one form or another. I can no longer really ask, you know, how are you? How is your family? It's always a question of condolences on having lost somebody. The crisis in Tigray is the worst crisis about which we know the least. There is, in my view, 
overwhelming evidence for campaigns which are systematic, widespread and coordinated of mass atrocities, including starvation, including rape, including killing. And there is also a concerted attempt to block information from reaching the outside world. The, the internet is shut down. The cell phone connections are shut down. Even international aid workers are prohibited from using two-way radios. I've never in my career, which is, spans more than 30 years, in this area and on this topic, seen such a comprehensive and effective way of shutting down information about what is going on. And there is no doubt that the reason for that is to conceal the gravity and the extent of the crimes that are being committed. So in answer to your question, yes, there is a campaign of starvation crimes. This ranges from the most obvious things like burning crops, looting stores, killing domestic animals, like ranging from oxen to you know, baby chicks, all the way through to destroying and looting factories, closing banks, confiscating the savings of hundreds of thousands of people. It is truly terrible. And yet this is a conflict of which we know precious little in the West. Basically, yes, it's a conflict that is complicated and has been conducted under a veil of secrecy. The, the actual shooting war started on November the 3rd, which was election day in the United States when the attention of the world was distracted. It started with clashes at army garrisons in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray. What the government of Ethiopia said was that this was an unprovoked attack, a treasonous mutiny against its troops. What the Tigrayan leadership, the leadership of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, who used to rule Ethiopia until they stepped down, and partly stepped down, partly pushed out a few years ago, what they say was that it was a preemptive attack. Wars, as we know, don't happen overnight. There's always other things going on. And the next day, there was a major military offensive by the government of Ethiopia, by militia forces from the neighboring region of Amhara, who had their own ethnic agenda, and a few days later from the government of neighboring Eritrea, which sent its forces into battle. And also uh, drone strikes from a, an airbase in Eritrea that had been operated by the United Arab Emirates, which had been using it for operations in Yemen, just across the Red Sea. So this war began in November, and what it has translated into is a large-scale guerrilla insurgency in which the combined forces of the Ethiopians, the Eritreans, and the Amhara militia are without doubt conducting a campaign that involves widespread and systematic violations, including starvation. Ethnic Tigrayans, as I understand it, in Ethiopia's federal structure were the dominant group until 2018. There was then a change in government and the suggestion is that at least some of this conflict at the moment is motivated by a desire to, as it were, put Tigrayans in their place in Ethiopia. Would that be a fair summary? 
I think there's there's no doubt that there was a, a political dispute that became very acrimonious and both sides escalated it between the federal government, which promised a liberalization, a more open and democratic system, and the TPLF that had been running a largely authoritarian state. There was certainly also a campaign of scapegoating and victimization of Tigrayans, blaming them for everything that had gone wrong under the previous government. And that has become extremely ugly. Whatever was the political origins of this war, and whoever fired the first shots, the reality today is that there is this ongoing campaign uh, against the Tigrayan people. And there is absolutely nothing that could justify that under international law, international humanitarian law, or any uh, moral or ethical justification. Many of the atrocities are believed to have been committed by Eritrean soldiers. Eritrea borders Tigray and fought a war of independence from Ethiopia. Is that your understanding that Eritrean soldiers have been a significant part of the the worst part of the horrors in Tigray? Indeed, and there's a very sad irony here. The Ethiopian Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, went and made peace with neighbouring Eritrea in 2018. There'd been a sort of, there'd been, a, as you say, a, a shooting war 20 years ago, followed by a sort of cold war. And Abiy Ahmed went and he embraced the Eritrean president, Isaias Afwaki, and said, let's put this behind us and let's make peace. And everybody welcomed that. And for that, he was given the Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, Isaias runs a, a state that could be called totalitarian. It's the largest generator of refugees per capita in the world, apart from Syria. And he had an enormous army, an enormous security apparatus. He has no constitution, no parliament, no media, and all. anyone who disagrees with him finds themselves in, in jail. And you would have expected, if he made peace, for him to have liberalized and demobilized. Not a bit of it. He used the fact that sanctions were relaxed to go on an arms buying spree and to increase his army. And he had a vendetta against the Tigrayans, who'd been at the helm of the state when they fought that war. And there's really no question, but he saw the political conflict between Abi Ahmed and the Tigrayans as an opportunity for him to go in and wage a war of extermination. And indeed, the Eritreans have been the major belligerent and have committed the majority of abuses. They were called out by the United States and the European Union, and Prime Minister Abiy and the Eritreans denied it. They've now admitted it. There is now pressure led by the United States for a UN Security Council resolution condemning what is going on, putting sanctions on Eritrea and perhaps taking other measures against the Ethiopian government. That hasn't yet led to action, primarily because of the threat of veto by China and Russia. What kind of atrocities are we talking about having been committed in Tigray? There are massacres in which hundreds of people have been killed. Hundreds of civilians have been slaughtered. There are some of the most appalling and tragic stories of systematic rape, of women being gang-raped, uh, being tortured, essentially, being kept as sexual slaves. And the very, very systematic and widespread destruction of what in 
international law we would call objects indispensable for the survival of civilians. So that's food, medicine, water, and so on, which leads inevitably to starvation, followed by systematic obstruction and stealing of international relief supplies. This area, Tigray, was the place in which in 1984-85, we saw terrible scenes of starvation leading to Bob Geldof and others calling for international aid. We haven't seen famine there since then, but sadly we are on the brink of something comparable today. And we've seen hundreds of thousands of people displaced, many of them forced over the border into Sudan. This is a a humanitarian crisis, not even in the making, a humanitarian crisis that is ongoing now. Every week the, the numbers in need are getting larger. Two weeks ago it was 4.5 million. Today it's 5.2 million people in need of emergency assistance. And the amount going in is a trickle, and it is a trickle that is even now being squeezed. It, even now it is reducing. This is a, a starvation crime, a famine crime, a crime against humanity that has to be exposed to the world and has to be stopped. Leandra from Birmingham says that she believes that there is a campaign of genocide against the Tigrayans. Does the evidence support that? There's no doubt in my mind that crimes against humanity are being perpetrated. And under international law, crimes against humanity are just as bad as genocide. There is no hierarchy of awfulness there. Genocide is a very difficult crime to prove. Crimes against humanity, I think, can be demonstrated without doubt. What can the international community do? I think that the the most important thing is an international campaign to expose the level of suffering so that the, the crimes must stop, international aid must be provided, and the perpetrators should be called out, should be internationally named and shamed, and in due course, they should face justice before an international court. Alex Duval from the World Peace Foundation. Now, the biggest sports story of the week has been the decision by half a dozen English football clubs to join and then leave a proposed European Super League before a ball has even been kicked. So, three cheers for saving the Premier League? Well, not quite. As I wrote in an article for Byline Times, the higher echelons of the competition, which bring with it a place in the lucrative European Champions League, have become more or less a closed shop. The way TV income is divvied up and the arrival of wealthy foreign investors have ensured that the so-called Big Six, that's Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Spurs and Chelsea, have virtually all the top honours sewn up. The age-old dream of climbing from the base of football's pyramid to its summit is now virtually impossible. Don't just take my word for it. Here's Sunderland co-owner Charlie Methven. In the last 30 years, football has changed very dramatically as a result of the inception of the Premier League. And what we have now, effectively, is a fractured false prospectus in the English football ecosystem, which is to say that clubs in the pyramid theoretically, have the opportunity to ascend the pyramid and end up coming first in the pyramid, as they always did in the past. But in practice, they don't at all. In fact, even very, very big clubs have 
as their chief aspiration finishing seventh. When we were discussing with potential investors in Sunderland, trying to persuade people why it was a good idea to invest in Sunderland, our selling point was, if you're going to buy a club which can finish seventh in the Premier League, this is the one to go for. Now note, we didn't say, if you want to win the Premier League, this is the one to go for. We didn't say, if you want European football on a reliable basis, this is the one to go for. We said, if you want to finish seventh in the competition, this is the club to go for. Now that's Sunderland. That is Sunderland, a club that's won six top flight titles and has a massive fan base, a stadium of 50,000 people and as proud a history as you can possibly imagine. That's Sunderland. So if that's the best that Sunderland can aspire to, what hope for the rest of the clubs? Absolutely no hope at all. And why is that, Charlie, then? Why is a club as massive as Sunderland denied the opportunity, in your view, of finishing higher than seventh? It's because the dynamics of the way in which the Premier League have developed has led to an elite group of six clubs whose revenue streams are so far in advance of the other clubs that even if they are mismanaged, ultimately, they will always bounce back to be in that elite group. Now, can there be the odd insurgent? Yes, Leicester City have proven that. And hopefully this season, West Ham will prove that. Is there the odd year when one of the big six are so poorly run that they end up finishing ninth or tenth, like Arsenal at the moment? Yes, it's possible. Does this really change anything? No. I then want to come to the second problem in the ecosystem, which is that there is a distortion in that the 14 clubs outside the big six in the Premier League are given a huge chunk of money to enable them to sustain the facade that they can compete with the top six. What this then does is creates a cliff edge to the championship where the difference in revenues between finishing 17th in the Premier League and finishing 4th in the championship, which is only seven odd places in the whole pyramid, the difference in revenues is maybe £150 million, right? What that then does is encourage totally unsustainable spending within the championship to reach the promised land of the £120-£150 million year payments that you get in the Premier League. That in turn then distorts all the wages paid in the Football League and it cascades down the league in a waterfall of unsustainability. So you end up with a fake competition that nobody outside the top six can aspire to win, fueling massive overspending and unsustainability right the way down the pyramid, where those even in quite privileged positions in the pyramid realistically know that there's absolutely no chance of them getting to the top of the pyramid. So the horse is bolted. The door has been bolted behind the horse. The stables have been vacated and they're being turned into a rather pleasant residential property for somebody to move into. This is no longer the situation that we were in 30 years ago. So I'm as big a romantic as the next man. I'm an Oxford United fan by upbringing, by birth. And I, I ran the supporters trust there. I, I ran the foundation at Oxford. I was heavily involved with the effort to take them back into the Football League, out of the, the conference and so on and so forth. So I'm a sentimental romantic who watched his club ascend from the lower leagues to the top division and to win a major trophy in the 1980s. That dream is no longer alive. I wish it were. I wish it were. I wish the Premier League had never happened. 
But what we're seeing happening today is the natural conclusion of the Premier League. Sunderland co-owner Charlie Methven talking to the Byline Times podcast before six English clubs decided to quit the proposed European Super League. Their return to the fold means that it's business as usual for the Premier League. I wrote in the Byline Times that that restores a wildly unequal status quo that isn't worth preserving. Will that be challenged by the Government Commission's review, being led by former Sports Minister Tracy Crouch? Might it recommend a law, as in Germany, whereby supporters have to own a majority of the shares in their club? I'm not holding my breath. Meanwhile, how did we get to this state? John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back, has been telling me about the creation of the Premier League, itself a financially motivated breakaway from the Football League in 1992. Well, for about four years prior to 1992, the big five, as they were at the time, wanted more money. And uh, they've been pushing the TV for uh, companies, like ITV and BBC, to get a bigger slice of the pie, essentially and to keep more of uh, football's money for themselves, essentially. And so that was what basically was driving it for the four years up to 1992. And the Premier League was a breakaway league. It wasn't a minor thing. I I don't think at the time we realised the train we were jumping on board, really. I mean, I don't have any great strong memories of feeling this was a profound change to football. It kind of didn't seem that big a deal at the time. I mean, do you remember it happening? Well, I do, because I was campaigning against it in the mid-80s because I could see this coming. And what was interesting about the Premier League is that it was, as you say, a breakaway. And that meant the traditional football league, which, of course, continued and still continues today, and which had spread its income from television and commercial sponsorship relatively equitably amongst its 92 member clubs, that model changed when the Premier League came in. And the top clubs, the top 20 clubs in that Premier League, were able to keep much more of the game's TV income just to themselves at a time when, crucially, satellite television made it possible to charge fans for watching the game on telly that had never been possible before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how when you look at it and you look at the stats on it, Sky lost money hand over fist in those early years because almost nobody had satellite TV. And we, my recollections of it is we watched it in pubs much more than we do now because we didn't have the subscriptions. I don't think I got a subscription until about 96 or 97. I think one of the ways it eased itself in was that it was a more communal experience. But I think it isn't, it isn't until the Abramovich years where we really start to see the humongous amounts of money start to pour in and it basically become an arms race, a financial arms race, to see who can spend the much, uh, as much money as possible. And now we've got to the stage where it's generating enormous amounts of money that counts because now we have to pay everybody so much. So it's really been... I think it's almost inevitable from 1992 to now, that we ended up with a situation where clubs were really jonesing for money all the time. And I don't know how we get off that now. To go back to those early years, you say that many fans didn't quite understand the the importance of that separation of the Premier League from the Football League, to which it's 
member clubs had previously belonged, but there were people out there who did. Obviously, one of them was Rupert Murdoch, who was the bankroller-in-chief of what was then called B-Sky-B, but we now know as Sky. He had deep pockets and was able to subsidise massively those early years to ensure the financial success of the Premier League. So the Premier League and Sky were inextricably linked. It's interesting to see it with the with the lens of history on it, that Sky and Premier League football have become wedded, really. And uh, I think now Sky would struggle, I think, to divorce themselves from the Premier League because it's almost the two things have become symbiotic because you can't really imagine the Premier League without Sky and Sky without the Premier League anymore. And I think, in a way, this has actually had such a deleterious effect because... It's meant that they've kept paying out enormous amounts of money beyond, really, I think, what it's worth, merely because they. it's almost like they don't want to lose face. It's almost like they, it's a virility symbol now to have it because imagine if they lost the Premier League, it would be a serious brand devaluer, wouldn't it? You know, So I think that's one of the reasons it's driven on and on and on. Well, it was very interesting, the outrage expressed by pundits on Sky about the proposed Super League. And then you talked about the next development in this, John, in 2003, when Roman Abramovich, friend of oligarchs, friend of Russian politicians, comes to take control of Chelsea. Because by this phase, a decade on from the creation of the Premier League, the Premier League has become perhaps the wealthiest league in Europe. It's got prestige because through that wealth, it can attract top international players, the likes of which we'd never previously seen in English football. So it's something that people want to be associated with. Abramovich comes in with his mega millions and changes the game again. That injection of money was a profound thing, I think, not just for what it bought but what for what it symbolized because it just essentially said spend money win trophies and that is a really pernicious thing Abramovich's injection of money basically made it clear that you had to spend to keep up it basically drew a straight line between money spent and trophies won and while that had been always the case to some degree for the previous few years from that point, it has been really, really the only game in town that has been spent to win. And yes, as Charlie Methven said, there's been, there is occasional exceptions to this and there are meltdowns occasionally. And there's insurgents like Leicester in a very weird season managed to succeed to win the league. But by and large, it is all to do with the money. John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back? I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.